0: Pushkin. Hey, it's Noah. I want to tell you about a podcast from New York Magazine. It's called Pivot, and it's hosted by New York Magazine editor-at-large, Kara Swisher, and NYU business professor, Scott Galloway. Every Tuesday and Friday, Kara and Scott break down the major news stories of the week and take a sharp look at how they're changing the way we communicate, vote, shop, and live. You can expect razor-sharp insights, bold predictions, and a declaration of the week's big winners and losers. Cara and Scott banter and bicker at the speed of your Twitter feed, and the show is as funny as it is informative. So subscribe to Pivot with Cara Swisher and Scott Galloway for free in your favorite podcast app to get new episodes automatically from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. From the campaign trail to the State of the Union, Donald Trump has put the spotlight on one gang in particular, MS-13 or Mara Salvatrucha, a gang that originated in Los Angeles, spread to Central America, and has come back. For Trump, MS-13 has become the centerpiece of an argument on closing borders and deportation. Today, we're gonna try to get behind the story. We're gonna ask, what is MS-13? What kinds of violence has it actually perpetrated? And what should we think about that for the question of policy on immigration? We're also gonna focus on the question of what happens when the government tries to crack down on a gang like MS-13. To do that, we're joined today by Hannah Dreyer. Hannah is a reporter for ProPublica She spent three years in Venezuela as correspondent for the AP, and she won the 2019 Pulitzer Prize for Feature Writing for a fantastic series, Trapped in Gangland, How the MS-13 Crackdown Shattered Immigrant Lives. Hannah, thank you so much for joining
1: us. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Hannah, maybe we can start with the most basic historical question. Who or what is MS-13? Where do they come from and what are they?
1: MS-13 is a funny criminal organization because it's really founded sort of between the U.S. and Central America. So the first MS-13 members were Central American immigrants and refugees in Los Angeles. These were people who were fleeing civil wars in their own countries. And they banded together in L.A. to try to protect themselves from the other gangs that were already there.
0: So this is South Central L.A. in the 1980s and then into the early 1990s. And it's an American-born gang.
1: Exactly. So they were sort of these scrappy young immigrants in LA who were getting picked on and bullied. And they were punk rockers. The aesthetic of MS-13 is still very 1980s. It's like skinny black jeans and devil iconography. It's sort of this like punk rock or metal um, symbolism that they Mm -hmm. still use. Mm -hmm. And they grew into a gang. And then there was a wave of deportations in the 1990s, and a lot of hardcore MS-13 members were sent back to Central America. And there, the gang really metastasized and became this hyper-violent, terrible organization that we have today. And we're seeing a new generation of kids who are fleeing that violence coming back to the U.S., and those are really the MS-13 members that we see committing the most murders and the most violence in the States today.
0: Some of the writing that I've read about their early origins about M- of MS-13 and even till today, emphasizes the idea of kids without parents. It emphasizes the idea that the, the first members of the gang were people who had fled Central America as teenagers, often without their parents. It emphasized that people who are crossing borders, whether they're being deported or whether they're coming across the border, are often doing without their parents. First of all, I'm wondering if you think that's accurate. And second of all, even if it was accurate historically, is it still accurate today at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a gang born out of dislocation in a lot of ways. The civil wars in the 1980s in Central America are crucial. A lot of people who came over were coming over alone and they also had seen a lot of violence in their own countries. Mm -hmm. So these are young people who had already been traumatized by civil wars. Um, which is important to say the U.S. had a role in. Absolutely. And now we're seeing kids who are sometimes coming without their parents. Often they've been left behind in places like El Salvador and Honduras by their parents. And they sort of grow up without a strong family structure. And then they come to this country and they're reunited with their parents, but their parents are almost strangers to them. And usually they're working really hard. So these kids come and they're lonely And what they've told me is that they feel like MS-13 really becomes their family and MS-13 understands them in a way that their parents don't. And, you know, they feel sometimes like their parents abandoned them and the gang was there for them when they needed someone.
0: So it's a gang that can function as a kind of surrogate family and that has, in your word from a moment ago, a commitment to hyperviolence. So let's talk about that hyperviolence for a moment. We'll try to be non-sensational about it, but just accurate and describe it as it is. What kinds of violence qualify in your mind as as hyper?
1: Right. So all gangs basically are out there committing violence. MS-13 is unique, I think, in that it's committing violence for violence's own sake a lot of times. So it's not a gang that has huge enterprises. They're not doing a ton of human trafficking or drug dealing. They're basically too chaotic for that kind of big business. What they're mostly doing is spectacular violence and it's calculated to be spectacular. So Spectacular
0: in the sense of it makes a spectacle. Everyone has to notice
1: it. Exactly. Um, people talk about it in the neighborhood. It terrorizes people. So it's usually violence committed with machetes and MS-13 will attack somebody in a big group. And this is partly to foster that sense of family in a sick way. And also- Meaning, to... the,
0: meaning the attackers are in a big exactly. group.
1: Exactly. So yeah. the attackers will, you know, surround somebody in a sugarcane field if you're in El Salvador or surround somebody in the woods if you're in Long Island and run at them all at once with machetes and- The police who deal with these murders say often people look like they've been hit by a car. People are just completely destroyed by these attacks. Mm -hmm. And they'll cut off people's limbs. They'll leave people in these very disturbing tableaus with several bodies stacked together. And they'll also use baseball bats. Um, Sometimes they'll use tree branches. And the violence is just very brutal.
0: Do you have a theory about why the violence? I mean, we're accustomed to a kind of godfather-like myth of organized crime as A, organized, which this isn't, um, but B, as sort of aimed at putting together, you know, real money. That does not seem to be the case at all for MS-13. It seems that the violence, as you said, exists to create some communal feeling about violence. I think that's one of the scariest things about the gang. And I'm wondering if you have a, a thought about why. Why, is, why the violence for the sake of violence?
1: It's very baked into the culture of MS-13. So going back to what we were saying about those 1980s symbols, MS-13 talks a lot about the devil and people mm-hmm. often say the devil is here with us or the devil took me over. So I had to do it.
0: And in fact, they're, the, the core gang symbol, right, is a hand formed into the shape of an M.
1: Right, devil your, horns.
0: De, which is devil horns if you put it up and it's the M for the MS-13 if you put it down. So exactly. go on, yeah.
1: Exactly. Um, and so- they, an MS-13 member would tell you, well, this is basically a satanic organization and the devil demands blood. And so that's why- they're So that
0: would be their own self-description.
1: Completely. Um, and- Have if you had we, anybody
0: actually say that to you?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. They say it just like that. They say, oh, the devil took me. The devil was with us. And when they're trained into the gang, when they're first initiated, especially in Central America, they have to kill someone. And
0: In order to get into the gang.
1: Yeah, to be a real member. Mm-hmm. And, um, somebody who was initiated in that way described it to me and said, the senior leader came, they went to a field together. There was a man who was tied up and the senior leader said, the devil is here with us right now. The devil is inside you. You have to kill this man. That's very disturbing. Um, it's hard to know. And the person who was telling
0: you this went on to say.
1: They, I mean, they killed the person. Yeah. They all did. So the person who was telling me this doesn't know if he struck the fatal blow, but Mm -hmm. he definitely feels like he became a murderer that day. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
0: Which was, I guess, the point of the ritual.
1: It's hard to know if that serves a social function. You sort of want to say it doesn't. Um, But another thing that people who are part of this gang tell me is that they joined because they wanted to feel powerful. Mm -hmm. They wanted to be known, and they felt like they were always getting picked on by other people. Mm -hmm. And Central America is a very violent place and there's these real histories of trauma there. I mean, there were these very intense civil wars and I think people live in a sense of perpetual fear and they rightly live like that. I mean, they are often in fear for their lives and being part of this gang and especially this violence, I think, temporarily makes these young men mostly feel invincible. And then the other part of this culture that's really important is that it's a very fatalistic culture. So MS-13 is sort of satanic in some ways, but the people who get deep into the gang also tell you that they know that they're going to end up dead or in prison. Mm -hmm. That feeds into this culture of violence because people don't care if they get caught. Mm -hmm. And so you do get a lot of people, and sometimes they're really young, like 15 and 16, who are willing to to go commit these acts of violence and not cover any of it up because they're figuring they're going to be dead soon anyway. Or they're going to be in prison anyway.
0: And that fits in with what you were saying about MS-13 not being focused on money. You know, if you have, if you're a young gangbanger and you have the fantasy that you'll get rich and retire from the gang life, then, you know, might have some limits to what you might be prepared to do. You have a long run goal. But if your view from day one is I'm going to die, my soul already belongs to the devil, then there's not as much pressure, I would think, to try to amass money, that there's a kind of long-termism to the idea of amassing money.
1: Completely. These are not goal-oriented people. And most of the MS-13 members who I reported on on Long Island were working normal jobs. So they were in maybe high school during the day. And then they were a dishwasher Mm -hmm. or they were working at a car repair shop. They were working at fast food restaurants Mm -hmm. and they're going and they're working full shifts. And then they're getting off and going to the woods and being MS-13 members. And then they're getting up early and going to high school. So nobody is getting rich from this gang, really. Uh,
0: There was a story that I read. I think this may have come from one of your articles that described a major drug bust that was set up with an MS-13 leader that never happened because the leader couldn't raise the the gas money to get in his car to drive yes. and actually make the buy that the, the cops were staking out.
1: Yeah. I mean, this was something that I saw all the time doing this reporting. I had access to one MS-13 member's um, Facebook messages. Mm-hmm. So I read through like 2,000 pages of, of Facebook messages between mm-hmm this one member and the gang leaders. And so much of what they were talking about was who can get gas today? Do we have a car today? Can anybody afford gas? If not, are we gonna use our bicycles to go and try to sell weed? Or does anybody even have a bicycle that's working right now? Um, It's like being in the head of a broke teenager who's trying to get to the mall, except they're teenagers who are trying to go find people to hurt or sell drugs.
0: So that almost states why this is so terrifying, namely that it's transnational and you're describing teenagers trying to get to the mall in Long Island, except that they're not just going to the mall, they're going to engage in acts of of organized violence. And the transnational aspect of MS-13 has been there from the start, right? It's a U.S. gang that then gets transferred to Central America and then makes its way back to the United States in various complicated ways. So I guess what I want to ask you about is, why does this violence persist in the U.S.? I understand that in the case of Central America, there are countries that have been traumatized by violence. There are individuals who have been traumatized. It somehow seems, maybe this is just bias on my part, it somehow seems more comprehensible in the wake of long, painful, violent civil war, which exists not only in El Salvador, but in other Central American countries, that one would get a kind of extreme gang of this sort. But here it is functioning in, not just in the United States, but in Long Island, a few miles from where we're sitting right now. And that's, of course, inherently terrifying. Why is the violence following the group here?
1: So this is sort of the most controversial point about Mm MS-13. Some people, especially at the Department of Justice right now and probably in the Republican party would tell you that MS-13 is being directed in the United States by people in El Salvador Hmm. and other people, mostly people who do direct gang intervention, maybe immigration advocates would tell you that actually there's very little organization and MS-13 functions like autonomous franchises and there's Mm -hmm. almost no communication with El Salvador. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to know what's true because Both sides sort of have an interest in arguing for their version of how this gang is is working. And the gang's not going to come out and tell you. So what I saw, at least on Long Island, there is some communication with El Salvador, especially when it comes to greenlighting people. That's how the gang talks about deciding to kill someone. Mm -hmm. So I saw that there is communication when it comes to killing a fellow gang member Mm -hmm. or figuring out if a gang member is a snitch or not. Mm And that when it comes to other kinds of violence, like going after the girls who were trash talking you in the school hallway the other day,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I didn't see that there was much communication.
0: I mean, it's fascinating. You are offering an account that is potentially consistent with both stories, with the FBI story and with the gang intervention story. In other words, one could credibly say that there is some kind of coordination if before you kill a fellow gang member, you have to get a green light from someone in El Salvador. But at the same time, most of the activity is presumably not of that nature. And so in that sense, it would be disorganized and uncoordinated and happening at the local level.
1: Right. I mean, like with so many of these super polarizing issues, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. And as far as what we do about the violence that this gang is still perpetrating in this country, one thing I think is important to understand is that that violence isn't really growing. It sort of goes in cycles. Mm -hmm. So the gang has been the same size in this country for more than a decade at about, 10,000 people, which Mm -hmm. is less than 1% of total gang members. Mm -hmm. And the violence that they commit is really insane. I mean, it grabs headlines. It's not like what other people are doing, but it's still less than 1% of gang murders. And what I saw is that it's really a local law enforcement issue. When law enforcement was able to take down this gang, Mm -hmm. it was mostly through the kind of sophisticated, organized crime strategies that take down other kinds of gangs. So it wasn't about going to El Salvador and taking down, like, the head of MS-13. Mm-hmm. It was about figuring out who's in this gang in one town and finding reasons to arrest them and then flipping them on each other and just sort of one by one arresting everybody in the gang so that they weren't out on the streets committing murder and recruiting new people.
0: Does that strike you as a an approach that would address the root cause as well, though? Or does it seem like it's more... In other words, you can imagine you'd need a joint strategy. If in fact, the gang is capable of sustaining itself at the number of 10,000 in the U.S., then it must be getting new members. And they're either American teenagers or teenagers who've come into the country or some combination, right?
1: Well, I mean, I don't, you would think that that's a simple strategy. And if it worked, then we just wouldn't have MS-13 violence here. But it's not as simple as you would think. For mm-hmm. one thing, This is a Spanish speaking gang, and it's mostly composed of Latino people. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these small town police forces have very few Latino people who could infiltrate the gang and don't speak Spanish.
0: So this is a phenomenon that we see all over the country, but it's very prevalent, for example, Long Island, where you have large Latino populations that have come relatively recently in historical terms. And then you have police forces that are made up of, you know, the people who have been on Long Island for 50 or 60 years.
1: Great. so on Long Island, during the height of an MS-13 killing spree in 2016 um, that was getting national headlines, mm-hmm. Trump got very fixated on this, yeah, on this we're, spree. We're
0: coming to him soon.
1: Um, the police force, which is one of the biggest police forces in the country, had three people who were certified to speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. And it's just very hard to see how a police force like that can effectively police this gang and protect the community from the gang. And what ended up happening on Long Island is the Long Island FBI gang task force really beefed up its presence and brought in FBI agents who spoke Spanish. Mm -hmm. And they were then able to pretty much dismantle the gang out there. And we haven't had a killing in almost a year.
0: So it wasn't a pure local law enforcement effort. It was local law enforcement assisted by, in fact, necessarily, it sounds like assisted by
1: the FBI. Right. But I mean, why was, why was that necessary? You would think that a police force that is dealing with a lot of immigrant people, some of the towns on Long Island are mostly immigrant, would be more equipped to deal with those kinds of problems. For sure.
0: I mean, of course, the, the police forces need to add need to add lots of Spanish-speaking officers. But I do wonder if, I mean, a small-town police force isn't necessarily equipped to hang, handle major gang violence.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, in this case, it worked pretty well. The FBI mm-hmm. came in and they, they really cleaned house and they did it by... Being on the ground in this community, and it had almost nothing to do with the border. And that's one thing that I hear a lot when people talk about MS-13. There's this idea that we just need to close the border or secure the border, and then we'll be able to get rid of this gang. And I think that really ignores the fact that the gang was founded in the U.S., and most of the people who I've spoken with who are in the gang now were recruited in the U.S., so... The typical situation that I saw was people would come over from Central America, land in one of these towns like the suburbs of New York or the suburbs of Virginia or LA and not have a strong support system and get recruited in an American high school or at an American McDonald's where they were hanging out after school. So closing the border doesn't do a lot to solve that. And FBI task forces also don't really help with that. I think that's something we would need a different kind of program for. So
0: there's an anthropologist called Tom Ward um, who wrote a book that's based on, I think about a decade of fieldwork, 14 years of fieldwork, he says, inside of uh, some parts of MS-13 and its periphery. And he called the book Gangs Without Borders to emphasize the transnational nature of of the gang, that it, it goes across borders. And then the opening paragraph of the book, when you open it up, is an apology for the title which is very rare. You know, when you write write a book, you don't usually want to have to apologize for the title of First Thing Out of the Box. And he says, you know, I don't want you to think in hearing this title that we're talking about something like an international terrorist organization. On the other hand, I am trying to show you that the nature of moving between countries has been part of or significant to the experience of of MS-13. And I want to use that balance to try to ask about this, this point of the border closing. Clearly, we're thinking of this when we hear it because of Donald Trump. Trump, maybe he was influenced by the fact that he's from Queens, which is part of Long Island and is aware of what's going on in the Long Island world. And then this spike of murders in Long Island that you described from MS-13 happened around the time that he was running for president. And he made this a centerpiece of his rhetoric. And since part of his run for the presidency was to emphasize closing the border and the dangers of immigrants crossing the border, and particularly of Central American immigrants crossing the borders, it was sort of like a cause made to order for him. What is the danger associated with thinking of border closings as something that could reduce or cut down on MS-13? You've made the case that it wouldn't work, but what's the danger associated with saying, well, let's try. Why don't we try to do more work of deporting gang members if they're not U.S. citizens and trying to stop gang members from coming in?
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think the fact that Trump is from Queens has a ton to do with how focused he's been on this gang. Mm-hmm. It's funny, there have been all of these, um, there's been all this violence on Long Island and there's also been all this MS-13 violence in the suburbs of DC, mm-hmm. but Trump is so much more focused on what's going on up in New York, even mm-hmm. though he's technically closer to what's going on like Virginia and Maryland. Yeah, so
0: though psychologically, he's very much a product of the Long Island milieu.
1: Completely. One danger of focusing on immigration enforcement when you're thinking about how to get rid of MS-13 is that the same people who you need to be helping you dismantle this gang, the same people who would be your informants, Mm -hmm. are the people who might be targeted by harsher immigration enforcement. So I saw this happen a few times on Long Island where young people teenage boys who were involved with the gang or adjacent to the gang, one kid had been attacked by the gang, were turned into FBI informants and started working with police and the FBI to try to bring down the kids who were, you know, torturing them, the gang members who were in their community. And after a few months, they were turned over themselves to ICE for deportation. And so one informant was locked up with the same people who he'd been informing on And they knew that he had been an informant and they started threatening his life. That gets around. If the people who try to help law enforcement end up being arrested for deportation, people know that. And they're much less likely to go to detectives and help them. And this is a gang that's composed of Latino teenagers. So it's already going to be hard for U.S. law enforcement to infiltrate it. Mm And so when you don't protect informants, that can really destroy an investigation. And I had detectives from the FBI gang task force and local police complaining to me about this. Is
0: it that the minute you start thinking about deportations, you're inevitably going to alienate the people who might work with the government to fight the gang? Or is it that the government, ICE and others, just do it badly? In your in your fascinating and, and rich reporting, often it seemed as though It was the incompetence of the enforcement system that was causing the problems, you know, that someone who was helping the FBI would get on a list and then someone would bureaucratically say, well, now they're on the list and we can't get them off the list. And then that would lead to to a deportation. I mean, I'm I'm overcharacterizing it, but you know what I'm talking about. And then when I read that, my instinct was to say, well, they have to do it better. They have to be more careful and make sure that if someone is helping the government, that person doesn't get deported and doesn't get put into these categories. So that would be an argument. Not so much for taking this out of the deportation and borders frame as for staying in that frame, but doing it in a much more sophisticated and successful way. Or the alternative view, I guess, would be that, no, the minute you go into that frame at all, you're going to alienate people and you're not going to be able to fight the gang. Do you have an an instinct between those those versions?
1: Yeah, I mean, in some ways it's above my pay grade. Like I have the nice job of being able to critique policy and I don't have to make it. But I do think that some people need to be deported. I don't think anybody would disagree that some of these really hardcore MS-13 killers who snuck into this country illegally and are doing lots of damage here shouldn't be protected at all. Some of these people are, to me, they really seem irredeemable. And I'm glad that law enforcement gets them off of the streets. What I saw a lot of in the first two years of the Trump administration was sort of a rush to get more MS 13 arrests. Mm-hmm. There was. To think, make
0: the numbers, as it were.
1: Right, right. So there was this pressure internally to get those numbers up. And there was also pressure to get the proportion of criminal arrests versus administrative arrests up. That's a little tricky to understand. Basically, you can arrest somebody just for being an immigrant here mm-hmm. without papers. Mm-hmm or you can arrest somebody because they've committed a crime Mm -hmm. and they're here without papers. Yes. So the Trump administration wanted to say they were going after more what they call criminal aliens. Which,
0: by the way, to be fair, is also a continuation of the Obama administration's policy. I mean, the Obama administration really emphasized that it was going to arrest large, large numbers of undocumented people and deport them. They just said they would focus on people who had committed crimes. And in fact, that's one of the reasons that many immigration advocates were very, before Donald Trump, were very angry at Barack Obama um, because he deported his administration deported much much higher percentages and much much higher raw numbers of undocumented people than prior administrations, including the Bush administration.
1: Yeah, I mean now we're deep in the weeds of immigration coverage, but that's a really key thing because Obama was going after. Okay, yeah, they were deep in
0: the weeds. By the okay. way, okay. Show's <laughs> called Deep Background. We got to go deep.
1: Okay, great. So here you have Obama. He's mostly going after criminal immigrants. Trump comes in. He just wants bigger. Deportation numbers. So they start going after non-criminal immigrants. They start Mm -hmm. going after anybody they can find, basically. And so the numbers get very skewed. Suddenly it looks like they're not arresting any criminals Mm because they're arresting so many of the other kinds of people who haven't committed crimes.
0: Who have to all the way also be detained, by the way. So there's actually a literal space issue.
1: Right, right. And resources. I mean, ICE agents are like running around Mm -hmm. arresting anybody they can find. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was if they start tagging more people as MS-13 members, Uh that's going to make the numbers look a lot better. Uh Suddenly you're going to have more criminal immigrant arrests, which Uh is what you want. Uh What I saw in Long Island was suddenly almost anything gang adjacent could get you tagged as an MS-13 member in ICE's eyes. So what happened was there was this Operation Matador initiative, and that was a program designed specifically to find MS-13 members around New York State and arrest them for deportation. So in the spring of 2017, people started to get tagged as gang members for being in the same park as gang members or wearing blue Nike sneakers I wrote about one kid who drew a devil in his school notebook mm-hmm. and was tagged as a gang member for that mm-hmm. reason. And because
0: that's a symbol of the gang.
1: What, right. So that's Among a symbol things, of the gang. It yeah. also happened to be his high school mascot. Mm-hmm. People started staying home from school. They started staying inside. These immigrant communities are very close knit and words spread very quickly that anybody is being tagged as a gang member right now. And what the people who lived in these places told me was that at first they thought, oh, that kid seemed fine, but I guess he must have been a gang member because he just got arrested. Hmm. And people were hopeful at first because they were very scared of this gang. And then they started to realize, no, a lot of these arrests are basically pretexts. ICE touted this as a wonderful initiative to rid the community of MS-13 and finally arrest criminal immigrants, but in reality a lot of those people were eventually let go because they had nothing to do with the gang.
0: What has it been like for you to talk to, I guess mostly teenagers it sounds like, who are who have been either peripheral to the gang or or in the gang? How do you how, what prepared you to go in and actually talk to people and hear these hear these things?
1: I mean, I felt very unprepared. <laughs> mm-hmm. I spoke fine Spanish. I learned a lot of gang slang over the mm-hmm. course of this reporting, like mm-hmm. when you text message with these kids, they write in this almost incomprehensible language. I had to make myself a glossary, mm-hmm. but I had been reporting in Venezuela. That may be true of
0: all teenagers, just not gang related.
1: <laughs> that is very true. They're also very into Snapchat, which I like didn't understand before I started this reporting. Hmm. But that doesn't
0: quite get to the human level. I mean, how did you get kids to open up to you?
1: I think it probably goes back to how isolated kids are who join this gang. Mm-hmm. The people who I talked to told me that they felt very lonely and like nobody understood them. Their own parents, were were absent or didn't want to admit maybe what had happened with this gang and their kids on Long Island or back home in El Salvador. And so some of the people I talked to when I first started speaking with them, they just sort of I would ask them one question and they would just go. Hmm. I would ask one question they would talk for an hour. I think they really wanted somebody to understand what was happening with them and listen to them without judgment, which I think is something that journalists Always need to do, mm-hmm. but other adults in their lives, like teachers or their parents, um, the police wouldn't do with them. And once I started talking to a couple kids, they started introducing me to their friends. I started understanding how people were networked to each other out there. And so then I was able to talk to them in a way that I think was probably less exhausting for them. Like they didn't have to explain who. Pyro Sands, this gang leader mm-hmm. and ladies man out there was. I already knew and mm-hmm. I knew who all his friends were. I had maps drawn up in my office of how everybody was was connected to each other and who everybody was.
0: You, you mentioned that you think it's important for a journalist to listen without judgment. I want, what I'm wondering is, how hard is that? How hard is it to listen to somebody describing maybe brutal acts and to withhold judgment. I don't think you mean withhold judgment ultimately. When you write your story, you're, you, can, you tell your story and there can be some implicit judgment in that. But when you're sitting there, I take it you meant you have to withhold judgment to be an effective journalist, to get the story. How hard is that to do?
1: Yeah, I mean, the story really pushed the boundaries of, of how much I was able to empathize with people. Mm-hmm. I felt it talking to gang members and I also felt it talking to the police. I thought it was really important to be as empathetic as i could be with both sides of of the story here. So i talked to police homicide detectives who told me that when a kid like the 15-year-old i was talking about who ended up in the woods gets killed, they call it misdemeanor murder because mm-hmm. i feel like he probably had it coming for some reason. He was mm. probably going to end up dead no matter what. Horrible. They would yeah, they would say things about people whose, you know, mothers i had spent time with, whose whose diaries i had read. In the end, I think I was able to understand why they were saying things like that. I think they just felt really frustrated by their inability to solve these crimes and stop these murders. And they were trying to protect themselves by coming in and just being very callous. And with the gang members, they would tell me about violence that was so horrifying. I didn't put most of it in the stories just because I think it would
0: have distracted. You actually held back.
1: Yeah. Some of the most perverse things people told me about doing, I, I didn't put in there. I did try to get very high up whenever somebody told me that they had committed violence. Like the first story in the series starts with the main character killing a person in cold blood. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to hide that. Mm -hmm. But some of the things they told me about doing, it just felt like it would be gratuitous to put in there.
0: It seems like such a delicate, delicate balance. I'm reminded a little bit of the, the novelist Don Winslow, who's written this cartel trilogy that is actually how I first learned about MS-13. I mean, it's, it's, these are novels, but they're, they're well-done novels. They're, they're sort of very close to the John le Carré level when they're at their best. In the novels, very brutal acts of violence that are, according to Winslow, based on real things that occurred, are described in very you know, clinical terms. And yet, as Donald Trump began to speak about MS-13 as this great danger, Winslow began to write public opinion pieces and, and uh, op-eds saying, look, you know, I know a lot about these guys. And what Trump is saying is unjustified and wrong, even though, in fact, the acts of violence are horrific. So there's this very complicated balance between acknowledging the terribleness of the things that MS-13 does and not giving in to the temptation to demonize people who are themselves self-demonizing.
1: Right. I mean, like Winslow says, there's a lot of different ways to be a terrible and basically evil organization. MS-13 is horrible and indefensible in some very troubling ways, but not in all of the ways that Donald Trump would like to say. So it's an organization that commits horrible murder. It's not an organization that is organized across the country and invading peaceful suburbs in the way that, that politicians talk about.
0: Even And you say that even though in your stories, you describe a spike in murders in a peaceful Long Island suburb.
1: Right. There was a spike in violence in Long Island, but that's a spike that you see every couple of years going back to 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not anything that really has, It's it's nothing new. I mean, it well, may make it
0: less shocking in some sense.
1: I mean, it's a crime. Chronic- we don't
0: want to normalize murder spikes in anywhere,
1: right, suburbs or right. or
0: inner city. Right. When Chicago underwent, you know, a, a big spike in in gun violence in recent recent years, that's urban and it's happened occasionally in the past as well, but we don't want to normalize it by virtue of the fact that it's that it's happened before.
1: No, and I mean, really the victims of MS 13 violence are young Latino immigrants. Mm-hmm there should be more effort to protect those people completely. But I think they would, the victims of this gang and the people who work most closely with the gang would tell you that having a national panic about MS-13 laying siege to our suburbs is not the way to really protect the victims. I wanna
0: sort of close by asking you about the imagination, about the imagination in both directions here. So on the one hand, there's the imagination of the MS-13 members themselves. They're trying to create an imaginary universe where they are terrifying, where they are empowered, where they're capable of engaging in these acts of spectacular violence. And then somehow they did capture the imagination of a lot of people in the American public. They captured the imagination of a guy who was candidate for president of the United States and then got elected. And then suddenly there he is, you know, in Congress at the State of the Union address talking about them and how uniquely bad and dangerous they are there's some connection between the two imaginations. It's like the imagination of the gang members is one circle and the imagination of Donald Trump is another circle. And somehow they're merging together in this overlapping Venn diagram of imaginaries. First of all, does that story make sense to you? Does that sound plausible as an account of what's going on? And if so, what are we to make of it? How should we think about this going forward?
1: Totally. I mean, it's like a showy gang meets a great showman and it's been... It's been a beautiful marriage for for both of them, I think. Trump has gotten lots of mileage out of this gang. And MS-13 is also getting a lot of benefit. I mean, this is a gang that wants everybody to be scared of them. People are very scared right now, and they haven't had to do much to earn that. I think what gets lost is the victims. How are you going to fight a gang if you don't understand the gang? And right now, there are so many myths being peddled about what MS-13 is by the gang and by national politicians. And who's losing there are young immigrants who are getting slaughtered and who are not being protected by local police.
0: Hannah, I want to thank you, not just for a great interview, but also for really doing work that manages simultaneously to tell the story as it's happening and as it has happened uh, and not to play down the violence while simultaneously not sensationalizing it. Um, and if other people are criticizing you for that middle ground, let me be someone to say good job. Um, that's exactly the kind of work that's that's beneficial to, I think, to thinking about hard problems like this. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, well, thank you. It is a tightrope and I appreciate you saying that.
0: Thank you for walking it with us. Making sense of MS-13 really demands hard work because you have to keep two different ideas in your mind at the same time, and those things are intentional with each other. The first is that MS-13 isn't just any gang. It's a particularly vicious and violent gang that focuses on violence for violence's sake and commits horrific acts, not only here in the United States, but in Central America. It's also a transnational gang, one that crosses borders and that sees itself as a nation on its own. And that makes it especially frightening. At the same time, you also have to keep in your mind that Donald Trump has, through his rhetoric, made MS-13 into a much grander, bigger, and more significant threat than it in fact may be in real life. He's used MS-13 as a tool to emphasize the idea that we should close our borders, including closing our borders to people who are fleeing gangs like MS-13 from Central America. What I took away from my conversation with Hannah is that it actually is possible, if you're very careful and work hard, to keep both of those ideas in mind simultaneously. She's not pulling any punches in describing the depth and the horror of violence that MS-13 engages in. At the same time, she's an unrelenting critic of how the attempt to crack down on MS-13 in the aftermath of Donald Trump's election has actually led to tragedy in the lives of ordinary people who were not guilty of anything, and made it harder in the long run to fight this horrific gang. Getting behind this story shows you that the imagination is an extraordinary thing. The imagination of MS-13 has met the imagination of Donald Trump. And Hannah says it's a beautiful marriage that served the interests of both sides. In the long run, if we're gonna fight MS-13 and not go overboard, we need to disrupt that marriage. We need to disentangle those two imaginations. We need facts to understand what we should do about MS-13, not fantasies. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott with engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background.